welcome to another episode of This Startup Story. I'm your host, Jay Smith. For today's interesting fact, did you know that Coca-Cola's iconic red and white logo is recognized by 94% of the world? The entire globe. Not bad for a bottle of sugar, huh? You know, today in the world of tech startups, you hear a lot of companies that become these massive conglomerates overnight. Well, I'm happy that today's special guest is someone that's been batting down the hatches and working hard at his startup journey for years, decades, and how his, quote, overnight success took uh, well over 15, 20 years to build. And so Eric's going to sit down and talk with us about how he took nothing, an idea, and turned them ideas and turned them into billion-dollar conglomerates that touched the globe. He's going to share some insight on what legacy means to him, some of the intangibles as to how he made decisions about what to do to move forward and drive his company from the $1 million, $10 million, $100 million threshold and scale them beyond. He's going to give us some insight as to how relationships have also been very formative in developing his companies throughout the years and the foundational mindset shifts that took him to not scaling one, but two billion dollar companies. This episode is jam packed with information, strategies, tactics, and some pivotal mindset shifts and golden nuggets that you can take with you. So whether you're a startup or just looking to take your life to the next level, this is certainly an episode you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. Today's special guest is Eric Smith. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. We're super excited to have you. Uh, Before we dive into our dialogue here, you can just take a moment to give the audience a little intro as to who you are and what's bringing you on the show today. I'm glad to be here. I live here in Utah. I grew up in Colorado and southern Louisiana, a little town called Thibodeau, and uh, came out to Utah to go to BYU, and I've kind of always been an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to make things work and figure out how they work, and so I'm currently in the process of starting my fifth company that's at least a fifth good sized company, you know, once you have a few assets, you always have lots of other little companies, but fifth major effort right now. And those companies include companies like Control4, uh, Ibon, one called Fast, one called Synergy, uh, one called Mingle Health. And I'm just about to do number six. So for a lot of people, I know for me, Control4 touches a lot, but I had no clue what Control4 actually does, and same for Ibon. So can you give us some insight as to what those companies are and what they do? So Control4 is home automation, and and home automation is something lots of people don't know exactly what is meant by it. They know more now than they did in the past um, because of Amazon Alexa and things like that. People are seeing these kinds of things, but I've always described home automation as two things. One is bringing control of all of the devices in your home under one interface, so you can have one place to go to kind of control everything. And the other is to make the systems in your home work together and interact with each other. We're getting a lot of that first part from Amazon. You can actually 
tell a light to turn on or tell the TV to turn on. What you don't get with that is the making everything work together as well. And Control 4 started, we started it in 2003. And uh, it kind of automates everything. It's not like some of the other things you'll see, like Vivint locally, you know, the Vivint Smart Home Arena here in Utah, where the jazz play. That's basically a security system with a few extra features. When you go into a Control 4 home, usually there's these touch screens on the walls, every single light switch, the home theater, all the TVs, all the AV, the hot tubs, swimming pool, motorized blinds, everything's automated and seamless. And so you'll tend to see it in the high-end homes. If you go to a parade of homes, the homes will have these high-end systems like that. And Control 4 is by far the biggest vendor in that space in the world, actually. The offices in Shanghai and Sydney and Bangalore and London and kind of everywhere else, too. So having a global company, what was what was something that drove you to look at international expansion? You know, in the end, there's just a lot more people in other places and you can only grow so big in the U.S. Uh, I've had three companies that have gone international. Um, my most recent one is a healthcare company and it deals mostly with the way the U.S. healthcare system works. So it's just a U.S.-based company. But Control4 and Ibon were both international. Ibon, we didn't have a choice. We had to go international. What we did is we, this is before Wi-Fi existed, but we put high-speed internet like DSL into the guest rooms of hotel rooms. And we did it in all the Marriott's and all the Hilton's worldwide. And they insisted if we got the contract to do their hotels, we had to go everywhere. And so we had to build out infrastructure in every country. They kind of forced us. And with Control4, it's just similar products work everywhere. And so about 40% of all of Control4's business is not in the U.S. And, you know, if you've done, you know, if you can distribute all the de product development costs over more countries and more people and more sales, it makes things more cost effective. So for, for Ibon and Control4, you mentioned how, how you kind of didn't have a choice. What was, what was one of the, the, the hurdles that you found in your, your global expansion? There's lots of challenges to global expansion. Just just dealing with the different countries and the laws makes it challenging. I'll tell you two examples. Uh, with Ibon, uh, we had an employee in one of the countries who actually was pocketing the same thing that here goes into like FICA, the, the, the employment taxes that are supposed to be paid on all the checks. We were sending the money to that subsidiary in that country and he was pocketing that money and not depositing it. So after about three years, we got a notification from the government that we were in arrears on all those employee tax payments, which we had been sending. And the person running finances in the office had been pocketing all that. So we paid it all back anyway and fired him. Then we got told that we weren't allowed to fire him because we hadn't given him enough warning and enough notices because that country has different labor laws than we do here. And it seems, it seems like, do we really have to tell our employees not to steal from the company? Uh, so you just learn little things like that. Another really interesting one I had is uh, in Japan. I was visiting when we were setting up our offices for Ibon in Japan, and we, the business was brand new there. But we had an office run by a Japanese man. Uh, we were starting to sell to the hotel chains in Japan. And we'd just gotten set up, and they were going to go out and do sales calls one day. And I wanted to go with them. And they said, no, 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 you, you can't go. You're too important in the company. We need, we need the... Only us go right now. And I wasn't, I thought they were just thinking that it was maybe below me to go do a sales call, which I don't feel like anything's below me. I'm, I'm willing to get in and help clean the dishes and build a trade show booth and do whatever needs to be done. And so 
I was like, no, I want to go with you. And I kind of insisted. And what I didn't understand is there was a cultural thing I was violating. It wasn't that they thought it was below me, but there's a kind of a fundamental rule in Japanese culture that if a certain a person of a certain level of hierarchy in your company visits people of a certain level in another company, if you ever meet with higher ups in that company, you have to have someone at least of the same caliber, same level of authority in your company. So we made five calls that day on different hotel chains. And so every time they ever met with them after, I had to go back. And so I had to keep flying back to Japan over and over and over again because I had made the mistake of going to that meeting with the lower level people. And I probably could have just held it off till it got higher level. I thought I was just being the guy that was willing to work hard, but they, they tried to tell me. I just didn't listen. You know, it's interesting you mentioned those customs differences internationally and abroad. Um, because here in the U.S., if a founder jumps in and gets their hands dirty, that's highly sought after. That's, that's a trait people look for. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, but my question for you, um, going back to Ibon and landing those key meetings with Hilton and Marriott, I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are trying to level up and take their business to the next, to the next step as far as uh, growth goes, um, but they just don't know how to land these key meetings. So can you take us into that? What did you do to get your foot in the door, essentially, to start to scale that growth for Ibon? And with that business, we recognized right away that our whole deal, there were basically, in the United States, there were three big customers, maybe four, depending on how you look at it. And if we didn't get one of them, we were dead. And it was basically Marriott, Starwood, Hilton, and then Bass Hotels. I don't know if you know them. They own Holiday Inn and a few things a little bit lower. And, and uh, Starwood now is owned by Marriott, so they're now part of that. But if you didn't get one of those, there was no way you could build enough scale to make the business work. And so you don't have to have a giant Rolodex to get in, but those are companies that are hard to get into. And it took a lot of effort just finding anyone you knew. It ends up, I had been at a company in the early 90s where the CFO of that company now was a senior vice president of finance at Marriott. And we went and took her to dinner one time in DC. And we said, is there any chance you can introduce us to the right kind of person that can get us to the people that would take care of this? And But we had to work really hard to find ways to make sure we could be in front of those people. And it takes, it's almost like raising money. Uh, you have to be all over the place, you know, working it from every angle possible to uh, make it happen. We'd sometimes call and we'd talk to one VP at the company and say, hey, we, we're, gonna, we're, we're thinking about coming out to the area in a couple of weeks. Could we meet with you? And he'd usually say, yeah, you can meet with you. Then we'd call another person and say, hey, you know, we're already going to be out. They're meeting with so-and-so. So can we meet with you too while we're there? And so we, it, it creates this kind of, you're not creating a meeting for me. It just creates this momentum. And none of it was ever lying. It was just called the first guy, say, hey, we're going to be out in the area. Would you meet with us? Then we can say, hey, we're meeting with him while we're there. As long as we're there in the building, can we come meet with you too? And, you know, you get a critical mass of meetings and you just kind of work it from every angle and do everything you can. Too many people are afraid of sales and afraid to do the hard work. You just got to get in and do it. Yeah, and, I, and I think sometimes people, people don't want to hear no and or they get turned away from their first no. Can you take us to a time where where you got a no and you thought, or, or if you know, there were a series of no's and thought, how, how am I going to press forward? What's, what's next? Yeah. You know, one of the things we say all the time when we're like out raising money or something like that is we often say, um, a quick no is way better than a slow. Yes. 
because we don't want to waste a lot of time. There are lots of VC firms out here. If it's not the right thing for you, let's just not do it. I ha we have no problem with a no. But a long, slow no is the worst thing. And a long, slow yes is pretty close to just as bad as a long, slow no. We just want to know what it is as soon as possible. And as soon as you know you're not interested, let us know. So I like no's. There have been lots of no's that have been good. I, I'm not I'm blanking on a great one right now, but every no is just another opportunity to, to move forward. I've had uh, business deals that were gigantic that we wanted really badly that didn't happen, but in the end, it was the best thing ever that it didn't happen. You know, when we first walked into Marriott to show them Ibon, Ibon was actually hotel room automation. So it was controlling temperature, lights, and audio and video. And the way we got the data signal to the room was a DSL modem, which were brand new because the only thing we could count on in each room was a twisted pair for the phone. So we thought we'd use DSL technology to get signals to the room and then go wirelessly to the thermostats and light switches. And this is back in like 1998. So this is internet's brand new. And everyone was on either their corporate network or they're on dial up. There was no such thing as broadband to the home. There were no cable modems. There was no DSL in the home. There was no the DSL chipsets had been invented, but there were no service providers doing this at home. You pretty much did dial up when you're on the road. We thought business people would be willing to pay 10 bucks a night for the internet if they could have a fast connection like their office. And so as kind of an afterthought, when we went to demo this product to Marriott, this hotel automation product, we took the DSL modem, we made a fake mock-up plastic of what it would look like on the desk, and we put an ethernet jack in the front, because again, Wi-Fi didn't exist then, so that's how you do a high-speed connection. We put this ethernet connector on the front of it, and we just put some metal in it so it felt heavy and substantial, and when they came through to look at the room, we showed them all this really cool automation where the blinds would go up when your alarm was supposed to go off and the TV would turn on your favorite channel. It would be your temperature. When you'd walk in the room, it would have the music the way you'd like it and the blinds would open. It was, it was a really cool experience. And he says, well, there's no way I'm spending $1,000 a room to do this. But that internet thing, we like that. We want to do that. As a matter of fact, we'd like you to do a three test hotels as soon as you can. And as a matter of fact, a brain share, which is the big Novell conference, will be in Salt Lake City in just two weeks. We want you to put it in that hotel that day for that before that show. And then they left and we were very excited, but it was, that was a big no on our automation thing. The funny thing is we had not built any of the internet access stuff. That was just a concept. And so we had two weeks to actually build that product, literally electronics, circuit boards, produce them and put them into a hotel and make it work. So just a quick note on that. Obviously during that two week period, you had to work with an immense sense of urgency but prior to that, were you working with that same level of intensity and urgency as well? Any startup, you've got to be working hard and fast. I mean, the only reason why you succeed over the big companies is you're more nimble. Giant companies can't move. They can't change direction. They can't adjust what they do. Small companies can. And so if you don't use that advantage, there's no way you're going to beat the big guys. So you've got to be fast. So over the years, you've grown and scaled some pretty large companies that have a lot of global influence and have done pretty well. Um, obviously, you've grown along the way too, and as you've scaled. So you weren't the same person as a child that you are today. So can you take us into what that looks like? What did, what did your childhood like? What, was, what did Eric Smith look like prior to Eric Smith today? go back to when I was little, I was in Colorado at that time. And then we moved to, family moved to Louisiana later. And uh, I was a kid. The, the interesting thing was I didn't like wood shop and I didn't want to do metal shop or any of those kinds of classes. And in my middle school, you had to pick either home ec or wood shop. 
for one of the electors. You didn't have a choice. And uh, I didn't like it either. I didn't want to be the guy that went to home act back then because people shamed people for doing that kind of stuff. And I wasn't really interested in woodshop. And the school decided to create a class called Mindbenders. And it was like the total nerd class. It was like for the total geeks. That, and you went in and you just did puzzles. And the science teacher taught this class where there's like, there were probably like 12 of us. And I mean, it's kind of like if you've seen Malcolm in the middle, the class he ends up in with, he hates those kids in there because they're all so nerdy. It was like that kind of a thing. But it was better than Woodshop or, or, uh, or Home Ec. At least to me it was. And uh, we were reading a magazine article in class and the Apple II had just come out. And you know, we were like 12 years old, I think. And we thought, that's the coolest thing ever. And the, it came out. We said, let's do a fundraiser and try to get one for the school. And they were about $2,000 back then. So we did, by the way, this is when an executive made $24,000 a year. You know, so $2,000 was a decent amount of money. So we went and raised money and bought an Apple II, and I immediately learned everything there was to know about it. I mean, I got into that thing, and I knew how to program every little bit. And so by the time I was 14, I was – I loved programming computers. I loved creating things on it. I loved making it make things work in the world. And I just thought that was the best thing ever is this whole programming computers. And it kind of led me to – my first startup uh, eventually, which was very small. We only sold like 10 items, but. And what startup is that that you're referencing? So, uh, when I got into computers so heavily, my, uh, my, I, my dad has a brother who was a desktop PC engineer from Hewlett Packard. So he, he actually designed desktop computers back in those early days of computers. And he went, he called me one time. He said, would you like a computer for Christmas? I'm like, hey, Absolutely, I'd like a computer for Christmas. And so I get this package from him for Christmas, and it's a box of chips and uh, books. And it's the chips you need to build a computer. And it's books, and he says, and it had a note saying, come spend a month with me in the summer, and I'll show you how to build your own computer. So at, I think it was 13 and a half, maybe 14, I went to his house one summer, I read the books, and he taught me how to basically design and build a computer. So I hooked up all the memory and the, keyboards and the displays and did all that work. He had me do it. I did all the soldering and then I wrote my own operating system. He didn't really know how to do that, but I, I kind of knew enough about software to do that. And so I, I built this computer. And because then I learned how to do electronics, I loved those little Estes rockets, like the ones you buy in Walmart that had the little solid rocket engines. And Estes rockets is from a place called Penrose, Colorado. If you look at the books and the, the boxes, they all say Penrose, Colorado, which is right by my hometown. My, my hometown is the big town near Penrose, Colorado, and uh, I actually went into it and showed him this thing. I designed a countdown rocket launcher. It actually was just in a, in a box you could buy at Radio Shack. It had a display and a, and a tone, and if you push the button, it would count down from 10 to 1, and then it would launch the rocket. So you didn't have the button. Instead, it would just do it all by itself, and it just was kind of a fun novelty, but I got them to put it in as a special order-only item into one of their catalogs, and you know, we got a few orders. We built them. The funny thing is the way we built them, because I didn't have any cash, and the parts were a little bit expensive. One of my buddies who still has worked with me over the years, he had a paper route. So he went in advance, collected three months of pay from all of his all of his paper route people that would let him at a discount so he could get enough cash so he could buy all the supplies to build these. And so he was my, my I, I still tease him because he, he actually got a master's degree in accounting, but he was my first VC with his paper route money. And it sounds almost like you've just, from all the stories you're telling me that you have this can-do attitude to find whatever you can to make it happen, which is which is really like the core of a startup. 
what was one of what were one of the the most pivotal or or yeah most pivotal moments in your in your childhood that you can look back at today and say wow that really made a difference as to how i look at business running into computers early on really did matter i mean i i all of a sudden realized you could create something pretty substantial with nothing but your brain and before software you always had to build deal with physical materials but software allowed you to build something with nothing but your mind and i thought that was extraordinarily cool as a matter of fact my uncle insisted I need to be an electrical engineer and not go get a degree in computer science or computer engineering because everyone by by 2000 would program their own computers. And there would be no programmers. And so it should just be, I should be an electrical engineer. And so he kind of, he, he really pushed my parents. And so I entered BYU as an electrical engineering student. But after not too long, I realized even electrical engineers mostly put a chip down on the board and program that chip. They don't actually do most of the design in the circuits. They do it in the code. And so I switched majors halfway through school to computer science because I, I knew that was the way you could actually build something. So, I mean, you went to college and I, I mean, this is just a big thing today. People are looking at ROI for college and is it worth it? I mean, am I going to get the most bang for my buck? Especially because now it's, I, I hate to say it's almost becoming the equivalent of a, a high school diploma or an AA. Um, you have to have some, a, a greater greater resume filler to make college worth it. So at the time you were going to college, a lot of people weren't. So when were you, did you start your business in college? Did you, did you know that I'm going to be in college? I might go work for a company or, or take us to what your mindset was. My first company in college. So I was, I was at BYU and I had this idea for home automation actually. And it was, I, I figured out, when I was a kid with my Apple II computer that I could make things like light switches and all these things, heating and all these things automate. And I thought it was really cool. And so when I got to BYU, uh, too many details to say how, but I ran into a guy, I told him this idea of mine and he said, I really like that idea. And uh, he was a finance major at BYU. And I thought he frankly was trying to steal my idea. So I was a little, I was a little hesitant, but, uh, Ends up, he was the heir of a big trust fund. So when he came home from his LDS mission, he had $40 million. And he he became my first venture capitalist. And so we started a company together uh, to do home automation. We built up the product. It did it did uh, motion sensor stripping lights. So only in the rooms you're in do the lights come on. It could control the temperature in any room. And you could set every room for different temperatures at different times of the day. And if there was no one in the room, it wouldn't heat it up as much. And so it would control the dampers. And it would just kind of control that. It was security. It was kind of that kind of, it was lighting, security, and heating and air conditioning. That's kind of what I was thinking about. And we actually put it in a home in the Parade of Homes in 1993 in Provo, Utah, and showed it to lots of builders and electricians. And and uh, they looked at it, and they're just like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to do that. <laughs> That's just too complicated, and there's no way I'm going to do it. And so... We got depressed and we thought, well, there's no way to do this. And we kind of we kind of just put it on ice. But a little while later, my business partner was going to go put a home theater in his own home. It was a big, nice, high-end home down in the river bottoms of Provo. And he went up to a high-end audio shop, one of these places that sells $200,000 audio speakers. And back then, those big projectors that were the size of a Volkswagen bug that would hang on your ceiling. And, and 
the guy that was running that place said, hey, if you're going to do this uh, in your home, you know, we can also do home automation. And my partner goes, oh, I've got a home automation company, but we don't know how to sell that stuff. And he goes, oh, well, we don't think there's any good products. Maybe we got to get together. And so that guy and his partner and me and my partner all came together one day to talk about it. We decided it might be worth kind of going on, working on it together. And that guy that was selling them that day has been my business partner now through all these companies. And so we've built all these companies together. The original money guy, he went off and did his kind of finance and banking stuff. And the other partner in the audio shop stayed in that high-end audio business. But the, the guy that was pushing the home automation and I have been business partners now for 29 years. And that's just another example of how building relationships can really help scale your business. Now you hit on something that's that's pretty hot topic nowadays, and that's venture capital. You know, I think it was Sarah Blakely that said everyone comes up with a million dollar idea at some point in their life. Now venture capital turns those tables a little bit. When you receive VC money, sometimes people uh, don't necessarily have to be as creative or scrappy or resourceful with growing their businesses because they're getting this in infusion of cash. So for you, how do you think that impacted your business? Do you think it was necessary for your growth to scale? Or do you think you would have been more creative had you not received that VC money? You definitely have to be way more scrappy to figure things out than if you can get some venture capital. And the, the challenge is, I would say venture capital has gotten easier in Utah and more difficult over the years. Uh, back when we were doing it, there were two VC firms in Utah and they were small. There were just two. And, and none of the ones you hear about now were here. There was not this whole startup method concept. There were th things like boom startup and silicon. None of that existed. Basically, there was Novell and WordPerfect were the big software companies. And, and, and uh, Evans and Sutherland did the flight simulators up at the University of Utah. And other than that, there really wasn't any software tech here. Small things, but not much. It's a very different world. So there's a lot more opportunity to raise money. There's a lot more ways to get a little bit of seed money. There are incubators. There are all these interesting things that didn't exist before. But VCs behave more like banks now, too. They want to see that you've really got some success under your belt, that you're really kind of proven the product concept. And so it's also harder to just have an idea and go in and get a VC to invest. And I never had to do that. I, I never had to go raise money without already being able to show that I've built a company. And it's really hard to go get VC money if you haven't built a company or you don't have real traction with the product. As a matter of fact, I always tell people, I have an open door policy. Any entrepreneur who wants to come talk to me, if they'll just come to my house, I'll give them an hour as long as they don't ask me for money. That's my rule. And uh, I tell them that usually, unless they've got something pretty significant, you know, I think your idea is a pretty good idea. And I think if you execute correctly, you could definitely make something of it. But no one's going to invest in you except for someone who loves you, which means go to your parents, your uncles, whoever. The only way you're going to raise money for this is someone who loves you already. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how you mentioned that in some ways it's actually a lot harder to receive uh, venture capital these days. And not to say anyone that goes to fundraise VC is bad or, or lazy um, because it just takes a certain type of person to go out and fundraise and not focus so much on the product uh, because they're they're trying to meet these requirements or you know file filing parameters for VCs. Um, I, I know for my business that um, you know it's good that we're not receiving VC money uh, because it forces us to be more resourceful and creative. Uh, just earlier today, I was talking with someone about a project to to supplement and scale our growth. Um, 
so I mean, it's it's interesting that that there could be two faculties of of thought there. If you raise a decent amount of money, it means the business has to be a certain size for you to have success, which also means it puts you into a different realm of competitiveness, right? So Control Four by the end was competing with Amazon and Apple and Google, and that's a lot harder. And if you if you scale something out yourself, doing your own kind of ideas, you can do a more niche product that's only for certain categories that maybe won't even get bigger than 10 to 20 million a year in revenue. But if you own it all, that's a pretty good return if you turn around and sell that. Whereas if you take a lot of VC money, you can maybe build a company that's worth more than a billion dollars, but you may own only 5% of it, which again, 5% of a billion is a lot of money. But what if you're only marginally successful? And you, you can get it. I've seen many people end up in situations where they've raised a couple hundred million dollars into a company. The venture capitalists have a right to get their money back before anyone else gets paid and they end up selling the business. It becomes a very successful business and they sell it for 180 million. And guess what the entrepreneur gets out of the 180 million? Because the, because the venture capitalists who put 200 million in get their money first. So you built this big successful company, but because you took on too much money, you got nothing. So you've built some pretty sizable companies. Um, and with building, um, not only do you need to make a mindset shift with your your development as a leader, but you have to make mindset shifts as how as far as how you develop your your financial acumen and addressing those problems. I mean, I'm sure your fundraising is different at that level. Um, and in the same mindset, that's going to take you from 100,000 to a million is not the same mindset to go from 1 million to 100 million to a billion. So can you take us into what that mindset shift for you was and how you conquered that? There's an interesting thing here. By the way, Ibon at one point was worth about a billion five to billion eight. And uh, Control 4 was just shy of a billion when I sold out, like 970 million or something. I was on the stock market because you can could, you could just go look it up. But the interesting thing is that I had a VC early on in my second company that talked about you know there's a third company and we were growing we were growing fast and he said you know any guy who owns a decent dry cleaner will do one to two million a year in revenue it's not hard to get the one to two million in revenue i mean if you own just a restaurant a taco shop you can probably get the one to two million a year in revenue it's that isn't that hard and you can even grow to 10 million a year in revenue and you can kind of if you're just a really smart person that knows how to work hard you can make it happen but his comment was going from 10 million to 100 million is effing hard, is how he said it. And he says that from 100 million to a billion is actually easier. It's that 10 to 100, that's the one where almost everyone chokes and burns. I mean, lots of people don't ever get there, but tons of companies that have been successful that are growing fail in that range. And it's because it takes a very specific set of skills and abilities that are very different, up to 10 million, Literally just a smart guy, kind of figuring it out, can make that company keep growing. But at that point, you have to be willing to let go of control of everything. You have to be willing to hire people that are smarter than you and let them be right and trust them to do their stuff. Because there's no way when you're at 80 or $90 million or a year in revenue that you can keep yourself on top of every detail in every one of those departments. So you have to be able to hire people that are literally smarter than you and trust them to do their jobs and just monitor them and make sure things are right and not have to control everything, you have to let go. And it's very hard for many people to do to do that. But the beauty is once you get to 100 million, 
you've already done that. And all they have, you know, you said you scale the business. So it's pretty easy to go from $100 million a year in revenue to a billion dollars a year in revenue, as long as you have the right product and company. I'm talking execution-wise. Clearly, picking the product that can do that, there's some challenges there. But it's in that executing part. But 10 to 100 is the one where almost everyone chokes and burns. That's Even the people that are very successful, really get some scale, that's where it's hard because you got to let go. And it's almost the kinds of people that can start something from nothing usually aren't the kinds of people that can let go of the details later. And it, that's where problem. That's why CEOs get fired so often from startups, right about that phase. And, you know, it's interesting what you, you mentioned about going from 10 million to 100 million. Um, you know, it's not like you were in corporate America prior to starting your company. You were in the trenches since college. And so what was that, that push factor that said, hey, maybe I do need to bring on some other experience um, outside of mine up until this point? Was it your VC firm? Did you have a mentor? Um, what was that for you, that push for you? See, for I also had a very smart business partner. He had a Wharton MBA, and he had been a brand manager at Tide at Procter & Gamble before he and I met. But he had not run, built and run something of his own. And uh, but he had a lot of experience, and we listened to our VCs. They, they told us, here's that lecture that I got about going from 10 to 100 million being effing hard, that was right when we were about to do that. And he was kind of coaching us, telling us, this isn't easy. This is something that's very difficult to do. And, and so we, we hired people to help us figure out how to work through that transition. But a lot of the problem is just internally, you won't let go. I mean, you can kind of talk someone through what they need to do, but it's really hard to get an entrepreneur to let go of control of the individual details. And, and so we just kind of realized we have to do it. And it was hard sometimes. But we started hiring these people that were from corporate America and let them run their parts of the business. And, you know, something I'm sure our audience would be um, interested in hearing more about, and I'm cer I certainly am, is that, you know, at what point do you take a step back focusing on the meticulous details? Like if you look at companies where the founder is still there, or if you look at like Steve Jobs, for example, you read stories about how he was so hands-on and so sometimes headstrong on certain details or or just how meticulous he was and and how he had his hand kind of in everything um so at point what point do you say hey I, I need to pass this task off to someone else or or when do you realize that you have to i guess not be so headstrong because sometimes it's easy for people on the sidelines to try to coach you as to what you should do for your business when they're you know, they're not the ones doing it every day. So can you kind of take us into how you addressed those those hurdles? Two things matter. One is um, being humble, just being willing to, if someone says you need to do this, instead of getting defensive instantly, just stop and say, why are they saying that to me? And what's their perspective? Because the truth is most people are deep down in everything they do, they have a reasonable intent. They're not trying to get you, they're not bad. And so you look, you stop and you say, why is this person telling this to me? What is their motivation? Why? Probably for them, it was hard to tell you that. And so you got to think about why are they telling me this? And, and the other element besides being humble is I knew I hadn't executed on a giant company before. And I'm willing to bet Steve Jobs was also very teachable on the execution side of how to put things into production. What he wasn't willing to give in on was the product vision. And that's a place I don't either. I know what we need to build. I know what it needs to be. I know how it needs to function. I don't care if it be, when we started Control 4, the VCs told us we were nuts to be building because we were building like 45 hardware products and a full software. 
we were building light switches, thermostats, audio stuff, TVs, video switches, every piece of electronics that goes in the house, we were building all of it. And they all said, you're not just, you know, everyone knows that when you start a business, you get something simple, you focus on it, and you do it better than anyone else. You don't do everything. And we said, that's the problem with this business. It's the integration, things all working together. That is the business. Therefore, we have to do everything. And so I don't give in on the vision. I know what it should be. I'm definitely willing to listen. If someone says, no, I think you're a little off here and this is the way this feature should be, I'm absolutely willing to listen. But we, I have not let a VC say, no, you should go down this path versus that path. But I've absolutely listened when they said, you know, at this scale in the company, you need to bring in a serious marketing person. Like at one point, we brought in the person that ran marketing for TiVo to control for. TiVo had kind of had its run and its growth. And so we brought her in and she was amazing. We then needed to bring in a new operations guy. So we ran, brought in the guy that ran Hewlett Packard's PC division. So all of Compaq and Hewlett Packard all their PCs, he came in to run our operations. And so we started bringing those kinds of people on because they told us we needed to. And then we listened to them and we let them run their portion. But if they came and told me we should start making birdhouses now, I'd be like, no, we're not going to make birdhouses. You know, a question I have that I, I'm pretty sure would help our audience as well is that, you know, when you're first starting out, you're the everything guy. You're the marketing person. You're the you're the financing person, you're the project manager, um, but then you have you have that product vision, right? That That's what your head's showing on. Like that's really what's gonna drive your business forward is the product. But there's so many other ancillary things you have to do. And so at what point do you do you say, okay, I, I know I'm headstrong on the product vision, but these other things have to get done. Um, and so how did you balance that? Knowing, okay, I need to focus on this to take us from A to C but task D and E also have to get done as well. So can you take us into how you would prioritize and project manage that? Just figure out what we absolutely had to have for the next step, what had to be there. And we'd list all the things we'd hope would be there and then we'd kind of rank them in order and then we'd figure out what just absolutely had to be there. To be. And that might just be, when you're first starting a company, you bring in some venture capital, it may not be to ship. May just be to prove that you're to a point that maybe you can install a couple of houses with Control 4 so that you could show them to some investors so they could maybe make an investment so they could see it. It might not be the whole product ready, but having a very clear vision as to what absolutely has to be there and then what all the nice to haves are, and then executing to make sure that within that timeline, at least the things you have to have done are done. And then not letting anything distract you because new engineers, especially, love a new technology. I, I can't tell you how many times engineers have come and said, we need to do a total rewrite of all the software because there's this new Ruby on Rails and now it's the new Swift and now it's the new, there's always some new thing and they want to go back to scratch and, and you got to just say, no, we've, 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 you know, we're here and we're moving and we've got to get the product and, and you, you have to be able to just kind of focus on getting the things done and not let the new things come in because there are a million new ideas that come in. They're all really important and if you've got a very clear vision of what, that doesn't mean you don't change that clear vision if something really is more important, but you all get around the table and you set it up. This is what has to be done by this date. You're building to that. If something comes up and you say, hey, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's, if if that, this new thing is more important than any of that, then we could decide to work it in. But if it's not, then it's off the table and you have to be very disciplined about saying no. And you know, you brought up a pretty interesting point about your engineers and how they always have some new new trinket that they want to work out, some new product or some new coding language or things of that nature. Um, you know, a new shiny penny. Um, the shiny, shiny, pen, 
shiny penny syndrome, I believe it's called, um, where there's always this new shiny penny that's going to take you to take you to the gold. Um, but I, and I think prior to the show, you mentioned um, pivoting for success, and sometimes you have to pivot in a slightly different direction in order to 10x or scale your company up and take it to the next level. So my question for you is, because if you if you listen to both of those statements, they can kind of pull you in different directions if you're not clear and careful about what your objective is. So how do you balance between the two and knowing, okay, this is just another shiny, pen, shiny penny that we need to veer from, or this is actually pivoting for success to scale our company to the next level where we have to go? Unfortunately, I wish there were just some simple formula. There's not for that. And I've had to pivot in businesses. Like I, I told you the story of Ibon. We were building automation systems for hotels. And we pivoted to being a broadband provider for hotels, so business travelers uh, doing their internet access. And that was a pretty big pivot, but that one was pretty easy. We're standing in front of Bill Marriott himself and his executive staff, and he's saying, there's no way I'm spending money to put automation in hotel rooms, but I like that idea. That's a pretty good sign from as close to God as it gets. And, right. you know, in, in hotels, Bill Marriott is God. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he told us, this, I want this, I don't want that. I mean, that, that, that's a, if you can't see that one, I can see someone else going, Bill doesn't know what he's talking about. But, but you know, uh, sometimes it gets very obvious that, that what you need to do. And, and But you can't listen to what everyone's telling you because sometimes you've got the vision and you understand what's going on and, and uh, you just got to stick it out. And that's really who wins is the people that don't ever give up. What I would suggest, though, is I have had many entrepreneurs sit in this room with me telling me their story. And I try to be kind and supportive, but I often try to say, well, how is that any different than X? And how is that any different than Y? And how is that? I had a couple guys come in here and tell me that an idea for um, another swig slash fizz slash so delicious but this one was going to have cups that are less likely to spill. And I said, you know, there's like four people, four companies that have some scale already doing that. And this is a Utah phenomenon. You, you, you know, the soda things just like what Mormon women drink instead of coffee. Right. And so I kind of push that. And I'm trying, you, you do need to listen. And if, if people that love you and people that are really smart in the industry are telling you that, you're not onto something, you probably ought to listen. And, but again, when I was going back after home automation, again, my second company was home automation. My first, my first company was home automation. We sold it after a two year deal. I went to work for that company. We built another home automation company, which we then sold. We had a non-compete for two years. So we built Ibon. We were going to automate hotels because we knew automation. We exited Ibon and started Control 4. So, so I've done a lot of home automation. Home automation is kind of my life. That's, that's been my whole career. And, and I've definitely had people that came and told us, you're crazy to take on the big guys in home automation. Like the company that bought our company back in 1998 was still selling that product. Said, you're just crazy to go after those guys again. They're so big, you, you don't have a chance. You should just focus on some little specific. You should find something like a media server. Or, so there are already companies that existed in that field when you started. Server. The rookie. And the truth is, that's, that's another myth that happens. People think they need to be first to win, and almost never does the first mover win. Think of MySpace and Friendster. 
Think of Yahoo and Excite and AltaVista versus Google. Think of the first mover doesn't always win. They sometimes do. Sometimes they really get some scale and they can do it, but it's really who executes the best that wins, not who starts first. And there's oftentimes you can come into an existing market that's been around forever and you can completely change the way it's done. Look what Uber is doing to taxis. Taxis have been around forever. They're just leveraging technology to make it different. Look what Airbnb has done. Uh, you don't have to be the very first. And Uber wasn't even the first car sharing platform. It just happens to be the one that got scaled the fastest. You mentioned just, I mean, you had Bill Marriott telling you like, that's not happening under any circumstances. But I think there's a portion of that too. And for anyone out there, is that you were out there. You weren't, you weren't, I know that there's this analysis paralysis. People think all day and they think themselves into nothing, but you were out there. And by being out there and in the operation and selling, you were able to make that pivot. It didn't just happen by accident. You, the, the market was responding to you. The principle I really believe in, which is, I just call it the build it, try it and fix it. So you definitely should be trying to think, here's the business we want to go after. And you should figure out generally where you're going, but you can sit and analyze every single feature. Like that's how big companies do it. They, they have analysts come in and they measure every single feature and every single product. And they do tons of research. They spend almost as much time and money on the research as it would take just to build it. And what we've done is by the time they've even thought decided what it is they're going to build and start building, we've probably done three iterations because we just build it, try it. Let's give it a shot. Okay. That didn't work. Let's fix it. Let's, and there's a classic business school case. I don't know if they teach it anymore about Rolls-Royce, which is GE for jet engines. Kind of, was a, there was some new technologies discovered to make jet engines more efficient. And one of those companies, I actually don't even remember which one did it, but one of those companies put their scientists in and they just researched the heck out of what is the optimal angle for the blades on the intake. And, and they just did all kinds of tests. And the other company just went and built, they, they built a prototype what they wanted to be and tried it. And it blew up. And so they tweaked some things and they built it, but they beat the other company to market by years and ended up dominating that industry. I think it was GE that did it the right way and Rolls Royce that researched it too long. Eventually they caught back up, but for a lot of years, one of those companies owned the entire market because they didn't spend so much time trying to figure out exactly what it was first. They just kind of did it. And I love the idea of even literally going out and trying to sell it with a certain value proposition, see what happens and come back and see what, you know, and then try a different way. And so not just with the product itself, but just in, in all the aspects of the business, uh, learning to fail fast. And you, you can't fail fast if you don't try. Yeah. yeah. I think that sometimes new people, people think about a lot about, well, once I get to this next level, I have it all figured out. Uh, do you feel like you ever got to a level where, yeah, I, I have it all figured out. I know what to do next. Of life, you, you never have it all figured out, and so you, you know you realize you have it all figured out compared to what it was back then. But there's always life always throws things at you, and challenge. I, I do this lecture sometimes when I speak to business schools, where I I call it entrepreneurship: what not to do. And I kind of just go through each of my businesses and the biggest mistakes I made in them, and what I learned from those biggest mistakes, and how you can then apply those to kind of anything you're working on, and. I love thinking about things that way. Like you didn't fail. You just found out another way not to do it. And uh, Edison said that a lot of ways, right? He said, I didn't right. fail a thousand times to create light bulb. I just found a thousand ways not to do it. Yeah. Sometimes too. It's, I know for me, I, I get an idea and I'm gung-ho about it. And I, and I sometimes have a hard time figuring out like, is it that my, my knowledge 
haven't met with this particular particular hurdle, or is it that I haven't I haven't pushed enough, or is am I not far enough on my learning curve? For you, I'm CEO and CTO of major corporations, um, so I find it fascinating that for even you, you still have some things that you have to work through. Where where do you find? I mean, you're the things you have to keep in mind at this level are a lot different, right? Versus first starting. So where are you seeking this knowledge? Where are you aggregating data from to make your decisions and work through those hurdles? Read all the time. I read a book a week. And uh, and I, I rotate every other week. I read something that's more self-help slash productivity versus one that's maybe more just like business concepts, new technologies. Uh, and so I read a book every week um, and I'm always learning if there's a new technology, like I, right now I'm learning Node.js. I've had, I've had products based on it, but my engineers did it. I wanted to know how to do it because you could just, you're smarter if you know how to do this. So this kind of act of just always learning and always trying to figure out, um, just try to learn more. The truth is that's what life's about. And that's, what's fun about life. I tried to retire a couple times. I was bored out of my skull. I, I could not just, I mean, I'd love to sit on a beach and actually listen to a book, but I could not just sit on a beach for the rest of my life. And, and, uh, I, I just can't do it. You've got to have something for me. I've got to have something. I know some people really just like that idea and just, it's good for them. But to me, it's this constant path of learning. And then just one of the things I learned a long time ago is every single person you meet, if you'll just spend enough time to get to know who they are, there's something they're going to teach you. There's not a person on this earth that doesn't know more about something than you do. And there's not a single person on this earth that you don't know more about something than they do. Right. And just going back to that humility, right? And that, yeah, sometimes you have to be willing to have an open ear to take your life to the next level, whatever that is for you. Next level isn't maybe building a billion dollar company for someone. Maybe the next level is becoming the best Nonprofit, the next, the best uh, gym teacher, whatever that is. Bill Gates, Bill Gates, right? Right. He decided to spend the rest of his life giving it away, right? He made all that money and now he's giving it away. Just going back learning too. What what did school teach you? Frustrated with school, to be frank. I, I, I didn't like that they weren't, they taught you theoretical things, not enough practical things. It kind of, you started on that topic earlier and it, it kind of gets me back. I really do feel like our education system in many ways is broken, both the K-12 system and the university system. I think too many people go to universities and I think there should be more apprenticeships like there used to be. I think the truth is many people that get college degrees end up being plumbers and they make more money being a plumber than they would have made even if they'd gotten a job right. in the field. And they should have become a plumber and not got $80,000 worth of debt. And it frustrates me that so many people, I mean, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna become a doctor or a lawyer or even a software engineer, there's a decent ROI on going to college. There absolutely is. But people that go get these humanities degrees and then go work as a product manager or a project manager that doesn't care whether they have a degree or not, it just seems like a waste of money to me. And I, I would love to see us go to where fewer people go to college and only ones who really need to. And there's more of a trade school slash apprenticeship kind of model like there used to be because not college isn't for everyone. And it was never meant to be. It's not like I want to keep anyone out of college. It wants to go, but it's so expensive. And if you're not going to do something with it, then why are you spending? But it's, it's, it's just been the path. It's like, this is how you do it. The whole world's accepted that that's the right way. And it's wrong. 
The interesting thing is my wife and I, this little side thing we've done all along, uh, we discovered the charter school movement in other states years ago and figured out that that was an interesting way to insert entrepreneurship into public schools. And so we worked with a group of about eight other people to get the charter school laws in Utah started. And so we started several charter schools in Utah, like Mazer Prep that's down in Linden and a few others my wife and I started so that we could create some other educational choices and go more back to the basics. So our kids have all been able to go to schools that we frankly started and my wife actually sits right now on the Utah State Charter School Board overseeing all of that. And so education's been something that's been a passion for us uh, and finding ways to make it more effective and better. But if, like with a software engineer, I don't care if he has a degree. I care if he can do what we need. I really don't care. I really don't even care if a lawyer has a degree, to be honest. If he's passed the bar and knows his stuff, I don't care. It used to be in most states, if you could just pass the bar, you could practice law. But many states have put in a requirement now that you can't take the bar unless you have a law degree. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, bringing entrepreneurship or the entrepreneurial thought process back into schools. Because I think back in the 30s or 40s, actually most people were entrepreneurs and fewer people went to college. I mean, they went to college for more technical careers like medicine or law or engineering, things like that. But most people uh, had a mom and dad with a convenience store that everyone went to. And so the, the thought process back then was creating, so you didn't necessarily need a degree to create a grocery store chain um, but going to that do you think entrepreneurship is natured or nurtured I honestly don't know I, I think they're they're built into someone's character I have a son that is brilliant he he, he has a IQ of like 148 or something like that that was tested when he was in high school. He got a 32 on the ACT and he graduated high school with a 2.8 GPA. Not, not a great GPA. And, and he, he is brilliant. He is so smart, but he just doesn't care. And he really doesn't have an ambitious bone in his body. He told me when he was 12, he says, if I can have a studio apartment and an Xbox and a computer, I'll be happy. And you know what? He's living the dream. And, and, and he actually loves his life doing that and so it's clear he isn't and then i have another son younger than him that is just on fire to build his first thing and he just wants to you know he just wants to be successful and he wants to build things and he wants to and so and i've tried as hard as i can to nurture the entrepreneurship kind of gene into all of my kids and they've just seen it their whole lives and they've seen the good and the bad of it my older kids I pretty much left on Monday and came home on Friday and was never home during the week. I had two years in a row that I traveled internationally more than 24 times, like to Asia 13 times in one year. Um, I had, I definitely was on the road and I was kind of a father that wasn't there. They saw that, but they've also seen the fruits of being successful and, and the vacations and the kind of that kind of stuff. And, and it's not for everybody, but I, I, so I, I think it's hard to nurture it. It can be nurtured, but it's mostly, are you kind of an ambitious person that wants that? Or are you someone that just wants kind of a simple, peaceful life and a job and be able to have pizza every Friday night in a movie? And there, yeah. there's definitely people of both kinds. I think you, you segued the question I was going to ask you last, but what does legacy mean to you? I mean, you've built 
a few meaningful companies. Um, you seem to live a comfortable life and you keep going, obviously. So there's a reason why you keep going. Is it for your legacy? Is it, I mean, you're starting charter school. What does that mean to you? What life's frankly all about in the end is about spending time with the people you love and helping everyone you encounter be better. And I think that's what it's all about and finding ways. And if you've had success, what it does is it allows your reach to be broader. You can touch more people. That's really the difference. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Some people used to say that money corrupts and uh, makes you worse. And it makes you a bad person. And, and I have a brother who's younger who actually, interesting, he's a, he's a, he's a really bright guy, but he's totally that guy that would rather coach his kids little league team and, and just do a regular job nine to five and, and enjoy his life. And he doesn't, he's never wanted to be like me and he's very happy and I love him. And I wouldn't want his life. and He wouldn't want mine, to be honest. I, I, I know that's the case, but his theory is that, that money doesn't corrupt. It's just an amplifier. And if you're basically an a-hole, then everyone will see it. And if you're really a good person, it gives you a platform to make a very big difference in the world. And, and that not just the money, but even the ability to execute and do things gives you the ability to, I know some people who have not made a lot of money, but have focused their efforts on creating charter schools that are amazing schools. And there are hundreds of kids coming out of these schools every year that their lives are changed forever. And although they never had any financial real success, they, they made a living through their efforts and their work they have had a giant impact on people. And, and some people just can't work that way. And, but I, I really do believe that in the end, your legacy is how many people can you make their lives better? And, and how much time, quality time can you spend with the people you love? And, and in the end, on your deathbed, nothing else will matter. How big your house was, how fancy your office was, how many times you got to ring the bell on the NASDAQ, uh, what your you know, body fat percentage was, how sexy you are, none of that's going to matter. What's going to matter more than anything else is, did you do the right things and did you help other people be better? And, and, and if you spend your life kind of focused on those things, it doesn't even matter what, if you didn't have successes in other areas, it won't matter. Yeah. What's, uh, what's one thing you would share with younger Eric? Um, Eric, that was knocking on Estes Rocket's door, Eric that was frustrated in school because he thought his talents um, were far more uh, accelerated than the, the traditional cookie cutter school curriculum. Um, what's something you would tell that Eric with all this knowledge and information that you've accumulated? I tell him who his wife was gonna be. But, <laughs> but uh, I would tell him not to sweat the small stuff. Uh, it's it's very easy to let little things kind of get you panicked. And, and the truth is, if you work hard and you're a decent person, things eventually work out. And and to not sweat the stuff when it comes at you, because there there have been definitely moments. Every every business I've started, I be, I believed it would be successful, but in every one of them, every piece of evidence that was coming at me told me this is ridiculous. You should just hang up your hat and go home. You're wasting your time. But I still deep down inside just knew there was something there that we could make happen. And so I said, just don't sweat all that small stuff because it doesn't matter. And, uh, and buy Apple in 1998. Yeah. And Amazon, that would have been a pretty, pretty return on investment. 
So just the last few questions here. So looking at you know the companies that you've built, you've built, I think it was Ibon to one point, one point something built and control for. So you were obviously capable of building them there. Why sell? Why not scale on your own versus taking it to that ten million or hundred million dollar valuation? Or was the market not not there? There's a little bit of a different answer of what the situation was. But if you are wired, most people that are wired as an entrepreneur that like to get in, get their hands dirty and build something new and creative. And they like to see that explosive growth. When it slows down to five to 10% growth per year. And the, most of the business is just about execution, just kind of building the next thing, making sure you do your HR stuff correctly, making sure you don't mess up on any reports and you start having to bring in big corporate people. It's always sad to me the first time you're being, this is not meant to impugn any of the big corporate people I talked about earlier, but because if they listen, they'll know who they are, but not meant to impugn them, but the more kind of traditional big corporate people that come in, the more you get some of that office politics and the jazz. When it's a startup and young, everyone's just kind of in there working hard and they're just trying to make things happen. If you watch the the, the social network, the movie, yeah. about the network, they're all just playing in that house, joining the pool, working hard. No one's worried about who's got what position and who's got the parking spot and none of that garbage, but that stuff comes in. And to me, it, I don't like being there anymore. And so you get it to a certain size. And so what I've typically done is I've stayed until the exit came till the chance to financially exit the company came. And then that's when I left. And so I left just one year and two months after control four went public, I stayed to get the IPO done stayed for another year and a couple months and then I left and at the other companies that pretty much stayed till the exit was there. It was in the hands of someone else who now was controlling it. And then it was time for me to go do another thing. And I usually always had another idea to, for the next thing. Story of entrepreneurship. And it sounds like you've not only created financial freedom, but you've created time freedom too. You are in control of your time and you get to say what you will and won't do in those beginning days. I'm sure it wasn't like that. You had zero time, probably not as much financial freedom, even with VC. I mean, you can't take a handsome salary then. How did you, how did you, at what point did you, did you start paying yourself your business? Were you always, were you always taking money and reinvesting? Were you working in a job at the time? What did it look like at that time to get to the point today where now you're doing these great IPOs and, and having these phenomenal exits? company we uh i didn't pay myself i just worked another job and we just got through it until we sold it and that's just how it was um the second company fortunately i was able to raise money instantly and pay myself i didn't pay myself like i'd pay myself if i were working at a big company that way but i paid myself okay so i was fine and uh on that second company we exited when i was 29 years old and and i had a goal of having a seven figure exit by the time i was 29 and i was fortunate enough to do it and so at that point I had what I called my F off money. I didn't, I no longer had to do anything I didn't want to do. Right. And so I could now choose to do what I wanted to do. And I've always been careful about that to make sure I'm in a position where if, if there comes a day, you know, Steve Jobs said it at the commencement of one of those schools, he says, you know, every day I wake up and say, am I doing, if I had, if today were my last day on earth, 
would I be doing to, to, today what I would be doing? So that's not a perfect question. The truth is, because obviously you can't live your life. You can't eat a giant cheesecake every single day. Right. Eat. But, but his, his comment was, if there's too many days, if, if one of these days I wake up and too many days in a row, my answer is no, I wouldn't want to do this. Then I need to do something with my life and change it. And that's what the freedom of having some economic freedom is, is, is you have some of that. Now the challenge is you start another startup. If you bring in other investors and VCs and you have employees too, there is some serious feeling of responsibility to them. And you get, there have been times when I've been at points in these companies where I'm no longer having fun, but I've got enough people that are counting on me to kind of come through that you just got to do it. And it's an important part of it is, is being willing to do what you have to do. Even if it's not a VC, even if it's just the other employees, if you just walk away, they, you know, they're dependent on you. And it, it's hard. There's, there's been times where we're not, we were close to not making payroll. And we had like, if you took the employees and their spouses and their kids, there were in the neighborhood of two or 3,000 people that kind of depended on us to keep the thing going right. And that's a pretty big burden to think about the fact that if you make a misstep, all of those people are put into financial dire straits. And it, that can keep you, it can create some real meaning, but it can also keep you up at night to, and make you work harder and motivate you. Yeah, amazing. I think, um, I think too, uh, especially today, and this is something I, I don't know if you have social media at all, um, something I'm doing a lot is you get all of these entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, air quotes, um, you get all these entrepreneurs that are on Instagram and they're showing off whatever ridiculous car that they have or they're showing. And not to say those things are bad, if you, but, you know, you're showing off this exotic car and, you know, these expensive trips to wherever, and yet their, their companies don't always show on the front. It looks like they're doing great. Their companies, they're not reinvesting to create something meaningful. Again, this is all perspective, right? I mean, what I want to invest into and what I want to build is different than what someone that just wants to spend money on education looks like. So, so what was that? What was that driving force for you? Did you always know that? Well, I could take this money and I could, I can go blow it into something ridiculous, or you know, I'm actually, I'm actually, I want to build something that's meaningful and worthwhile. First little comment there, the I just don't I've never been that guy to show off my new car or something. I just I, I cringe when I see some of those things uh on Facebook and stuff. I I, I don't love that. I, I don't I don't want to disparage the people that do it. I, I kind of understand why they're doing it. And I definitely always wanted to be successful. And when I was in high school, I definitely wanted the kids in high school to knew to know I, I had been a success. But I went back to a high school union and didn't tell a soul what I, I just said I was an engineer. And and you know some people figured it out eventually but i the truth is if what you want is that kind of recognition it's way better to be have that recognized without you telling anyone than to recognize with it, 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 it looks, you know, the truth is if they figure it out on their own it's way more impressive than if you come and try to impress people i don't know if that would be necessarily need to and, and uh so i there was a second half of that question i don't quite remember what it was but I mean, knowing what to reinvest your money into there's, there's, I mean, you can, you can spend it on the flashy things or, or you can, you know, reinvest into your, into your business. And, and so it sounds like for you building something meaningful and, but I mean, at a certain point, I mean, you have a, you have a company that's doing really well. I mean, what were those foundational principles that said, Hey, I'm, I'm, 
you know, I think I'm in a comfortable place to buy this car or buy this, you know, take this vacation I, I want to take. We, I talked about the F off money that I wanted to have. And so I've always been very careful on my houses and it doesn't look that way when you're here, but for years, I had a house smaller than all of my vice presidents. They, they all had bigger houses than me. One time a guy came to our door and asked somehow, somehow in the conversation with my wife, he found out I was the founder of Ibon. He goes, your husband's the founder of Ibon and you live here. And she, but, but I, we were always very careful about living leanly enough that we could always make our own decisions. We were never bound by the expensive house or the expensive cars. And now we live in a 15,000 square foot house now. And, and, but we bought that mainly because we have lots of grandkids and we were, we're active in uh, doing church service with a bunch of young single adults who want to have a place to entertain. And also I can have this house and still have my F off money. So I don't need to worry about that. Yeah. But I've always been kind of careful. Even if I want a nice car, I look for one that's two or three years used with that's still under the certified pre-owned, but I don't buy the brand new one. I just bought a CLS 550, but it's, it's a 2017 and uh, it's got 28,000 miles and I'm just, and I don't think I'd ever buy a Ferrari. I'm not trying to disparage anyone who would, but I just, I think that's too showy and that's just not what life's about. But again, I don't think it's wrong. I know people just love cars and all their lives. They wanted that car and they really like racing and stuff like that. And so, I wouldn't want to disparage them for having it, but for me, it would feel all wrong to get some really flashy car like that, some big red Ferrari and drive it down the roads. It's sure. wrong. not me. Um, before we get out of here, I, um, I have a few questions that I ask every show guest. Um, and I, I mean, this is great. I think so much value in it inside and, and a great mental shift, um, I think, for our audience. I mean, I... I don't know who who's on it's on listening, but I, we may be listening to the next uh, Walt Disney or Robert Smith, or who, who knows, or the next Eric Smith. Um, but what are some things? If you look back, uh, the questions are: keep, tweak, delete, or the series keep, tweak, delete. What's one thing you've kept in your business that's helped drive you forward and helped drive your business? What's one thing you've tweaked or adjusted or pivoted? in your business that's helped continue to accelerate your growth? And what's one thing you've deleted or removed that had you not removed that, had you not yeah, removed that process or that, or that, that issue, your, your business may not have gone to the NASDAQ, you, you may have not plateaued, you may have plateaued at 10 million or your business might've shuttered. Is uh, my business partner. You know, we, uh, it's very rare for entrepreneurs to be together and build a big company and never work together again. They, they usually can't stand each other by the end. And if you look around the world at them, they, they don't exist. It doesn't happen. If you have a couple partners that start a business, they rarely do another business together. And we've done five. And he's an amazing guy. And we complement each other really well. And we know how to work through things. And it's, it's very uncommon. And and I've just been blessed that I mean, the truth is he's a little bit older than I am, five or six years older than I am. He already had a Wharton MBA and I was just an undergrad student at BYU with some ideas. I was clueless and, and we've kind of grown together and I, I wouldn't change that. The, the, the tweak, something I learned pretty early in the career is 
it's really easy to kind of revel in the success of a company that's growing and not to want to hear the bad news. And, but there's almost always some bad news. And a lot of people that run companies don't want to hear that part. They, they, they almost want to ignore it. It's kind of like when your car starts making a funny noise and you just don't want to even listen to it. You just kind of want to ignore that it's there. You don't, you're worried it's going to be expensive. So you just, you don't even look into it. But if you really want to be successful, you've got to look and you've got to figure it out. And, and a couple examples examples of that are uh, the uh, just measuring, finding the key things that measure your business. For you, it's probably listens, right? How many people listen or how downloads or I don't know, but Watch that closely, see what changes, watch it over time, measure it meticulously, find any kind of metrics you can find because whatever you measure and watch gets better. So figure out what those things are you need to measure in your business and then measure them intently. If it's returns, if you're making you know, t-shirts then look at the return rate and what's going on, why are they being returned, what's the problems, dig into it. With Control4, we started doing surveys of all of our customers. And the truth is a lot of them, about 5%, we called them the angry birds. They hated us. They thought they, they were very wealthy, very successful people with these big systems. And they, they just sent back scathing, nasty. And our CEO at the time, who was the new guy who kind of came in to run it, and he just retired last year, just, just last year in October, he called every one of them up personally, talked to them about the issues, worked through the issues, sent people to their homes. And in the end, all but two of them in the whole world bought more stuff from us after he paid attention to them and helped them and turned them into big promoters. But that's hard. You, you, know, you might say, well, 5% don't like us. Who cares? Let's just pay attention to the ones that do like us. Right. right. And, uh, but digging in and figuring that out, measuring your business, finding where the problems are and looking for them intently and being willing to face them hard because it's, it's much, you don't want to come in and find the problems. You know, usually you just hope they kind of just go away. And uh, it's like people just run their credit card every time and just hope it doesn't bounce, right? They, they don't even want to look at the balance. They just want to, let's just give it a shot because they don't want to know. They just don't. Yeah. And you got to be willing to look and, and, and know because you can't really take control of things if you don't. And, uh, and then the delete, uh, the, the biggest delete would be early in my career, I was a young, smart guy who uh, was pretty confident that he was right. And I would just let go of a lot of that. There were times I'd get kind of stuck. That's why I've talked about being humble so much, because I learned the hard way. Because I, yeah. I was a punk sometimes early on, and I thought I knew everything. And, and I thought people that didn't do it my way were just stupid. <laughs> and uh, it's a very common thing for engineers to feel that way about people. But, oh. <laughs> um, but that's the biggest elite, is just you know, kind of let your pride go. I mean, have confidence that you know what you're doing. But that doesn't need to turn into pride. And there's a difference between confidence and pride. Confidence just means you know you're right. But you, if someone disagrees with you, you go, oh, okay. I don't see it that way, but okay. And back in the day, I would have to prove to them that I was right. And, and just kind of got to let go of that. And I think that's just age talking. Not a favorite. And just something that I'm sure the audience would like to before we get out of here. What are some sort of routines that you have throughout the day? You hear a lot of uh, executive CEOs that have these morning routines of they wake up. I know I read in Bob Iger's book, it's like 4.15 in the morning. And, yeah, yeah, it's a phenomenal book. Finished it about three weeks ago. Love that book. Yeah. It sleeps in until four. Insane. But, I mean, he's running a pretty big company. What do you have to do? What are your routines? I, I, 
I actually have a problem with people. There's a there's a big concept out there that people that stay up late and sleep in are bad people, and people that get up early and go to bed early are good people. You know, the Benjamin Franklin thing where he says early to sleep early is a rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, wise, whatever that is. There is definitely that concept. But some people just are wired differently. And, and what I think really what matters is that you use your time effectively, whatever it is. If you're, if you're the kind of person that likes to stay up till one in the morning and sleep till nine in the morning, but you get your eight hours and then you get up and do the same, you, you do the right things. I, I don't I don't have a problem with the early morning guys are better. Now, if, if what the problem people break into is what they do is from seven o'clock on, they drink and then they don't get up till nine in the morning. They're not living their lives very productively. And so, yes, the Bob Igers that get up at five in the morning are better than the, those guys because because they're not wasting so much of their time. But if if someone's just works better that way, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But but my my routine, I get up at six forty-five because my kids need to. That's when they need to be up for school, and I I we do some family stuff first thing in the morning, and then they all get ready, and I take them to school, and I come home, and I run, and I lift. And I actually have a tanny bed and steam sauna in my basement. So I, I do, I kind of do my morning. I meditate while I'm in the steam sauna. just enjoy that. It's quiet. I shut the door. I turn off all the electronics and I, and I kind of try to spend some of it completely calm and not thinking about anything. And then some of it thinking about my day. And then I, I come up and take a shower and I drink a green smoothie, a low carb green smoothie because it's good for you and get your veggies in and stuff like that. And then I start working and I, and I, I almost never spend time on TV unless it's a meaningful, like with the family watching a movie. I don't waste my time on TV. I, I spend time reading books and learning things and going out to dinner with my wife, quality time, or taking a couple kids with us somewhere or going out to dinner with friends. But, but I find I try to not spend any time on stupid games on my phone. I have some, so like when I'm sitting in a doctor's office and I'm just, I got to waste some time, but it's, it's being, Thinking the, the one asset you can't get more of is time. So using that time effectively to do the things that really make a difference and sitting and watching all of the Seinfeld again, or all of the friends again, just doesn't really add much to your life. And, uh, but I do believe you got to treat your body right or else you can't, you can't perform at top efficiency and you've got to eat right and you've got to feed your mind and you got to not just waste time now, now, but it, I do waste time lots. I mean, I love having like a movie night with my kids and having them come over and watch a movie down in the theater and we have a good old time. And I, every Sunday I make a dinner for all the kids and they all come over and, and just that time is, is great time. And we, we, we do stuff with friends probably three nights a week where we go out to dinner or they come over. That's all high value stuff, but surfing Facebook and I check Facebook for about 10 minutes each day to see if any of my friends died or something. <laughs> just, you know, real quickly to make sure there's not anything I need to handle, but it, you could spend hours there and, and it just tends to make you depressed. And same with just watching TV all day. It just makes you depressed. And it's just sad that such a high percentage of our people in our world, we have so much free time because of the prosperity of not just our country, but the world. And we're wasting it looking at Facebook and watching TV and YouTube videos and when it could be spent learning and serving and being friends with people and spending quality time with people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and that's a great tip. Cause I know for me, sometimes, especially being in media, sometimes I, I lose sight of, well, what's the, am I making the next big move? I think I'm probably big too. My wife is always telling me that you, know, you, you probably take a break. 
I, I just I don't necessarily make the most of my time working or spending time with other people. But, um, well, I guess our last question of the show is so money moves. That's what I like to ask every guest. What's the next major leap? Or well, I guess if you see you're uh, selling current uh, since you fired yourself. <laughs> I let myself go on October yeah. 1st. Uh, so, so what's next for you? What's, uh, what's on the horizon for you? I think I have one more. The rest of my life is going to be more like uh, doing missions and things like that. Service, kind of running a school or things like that. Not less about the business thing. And I'm going to do one more home automation startup, actually. And I won't give you the details because that's all secret, but that's, that's my passion. And I'm going to go back into that area and fill a niche. There's, there's a giant hole in the market right now that no one's addressing. And I think it'll be the biggest thing I ever do, actually. That's incredible. Well, I'm happy that you're, you're still working in to, to make an impact in the world and, and building some pretty meaningful things that, that we can all enjoy. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I'm super excited you ever carve out some time for us to, to help. What an amazing episode that was. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that was just such a great reminder that there is so much opportunity out in the world and how we're not just limited to the prospects of the United States and the United States or North American customer base, but how we can truly expand and that there is so much global commerce and enterprise and people breaking bread with each other from so many different countries. You know, and just one thing I want to acknowledge is that Eric actually invited us into his home to do this recording. And how he was such a humble guy. And not only does that resonate through the recording, but you could just tell from when we were doing our pre and post interview um, dialogue and kind of question and answer segment. And how he really breaks down some practical tips, no matter what phase you are are in in your startup journey you know he didn't start off with uh, millions of dollars in his bank account to start his business he had to network with people that could help him fundraise he had to had to have an idea a product to bring to concept and i think that's something that a lot of us forget is that when you're out there and you're beta testing and you're putting your product out in the market and you're moving swift and you're letting the market respond, that's when you can start to get traction. But if you're sitting there conceptualizing and you're you're getting analysis paralysis, you're on a slow and painful death to nowhere. So yes, do you have to put some thought and foresight into your product? Absolutely. But you also have to put your product in front of your customers. Now, will your customer always know what they want? No. But like Eric said, there is some opportunity being the first to a market. But just because you're not first doesn't mean there isn't any opportunity. And I think that was so valuable and so insightful. You know, I can just go on and on about what I learned from this episode. um, And being that I get to listen to it a few times before it rolls out to the public. I'm still taking notes on a lot of the golden nuggets that he had in the show because he is bringing years of experience 
taking nothing and turning it into something, guys. It's not like he inherited a business from his family. He had to start this all on his own. And so the golden nuggets and the value that he dropped for our team of listeners is so invaluable that I'm super excited and super amped up to see what our team of listeners, what they take their startups to. Whether you're a nonprofit, whether you're a for-profit, there is so much value jam-packed into this episode that could help you take your, your startup to the next level. And so I'd encourage you to listen to this episode a few times and share it with a friend that's on their startup journey that maybe doesn't know which way to go to get some traction. Because we've all been there. We've all just had so much that we're, you know, it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. That we're trying to take in so much and do so much that sometimes we forget, okay, let's stop, take a minute, look at the paths of people that have built great companies. Let's look at what they've done. Because they've done a lot of the hard work to, you know, bump their heads and to stumble and, and learning how to pivot. You know, one of the things that Eric talks about, pivoting for success and knowing when to do that. And so again, I was just super excited to do this interview. Um, you know, it's it's definitely a game changer for us here at Hot Latte and, and at this startup team, knowing what we need to do to take our company to the next level, take our show to the next level and how to scale. And that as, as much as we enjoy sharing our our product or our information or our show with our United States uh, base of listeners that we can truly touch the globe one show at a time. And so I appreciate you guys listening to this episode. Please share with a friend that could benefit from this. Give us some feedback as to what you thought about the show and and some different ways or some some guests that you would like to listen to on the show and as I always say you run a marathon the same way you climb a mountain one step at a time until next week's episode or if you tune in for this week's weekly short we'll see you at the top